This podcast is brought to you by The Province. Listening to Keyboard Kimura, the official mixed martial arts podcast of the province. Here are your hosts, Paul Chapman and E. Spencer Kite. In the words of the notorious Conor McGregor, surprise, surprise, no MFers, because, you know, it might be a family show. Welcome, everybody, to a surprise edition of the Keyboard Kimura podcast, taping this fresh off the conclusion of UFC 203. In the land, I am E. Spencer Kite. I am joined, as always, by my punch-drunk predictions partner in crime, Patrick Shifiklinski. Patty, it was a crazy night of fights tonight in Cleveland, capped off by the hometown boy Stipe Mayosic retaining the heavyweight title in a bonkers back-and-forth with Alistair Overeem that rates for me right up there alongside Nick Diaz, Paul Daly, as one of the most entertaining single rounds that I can remember. Also probably that Travis Brown, Andre Arlovsky fight. A weird way to finish off a weird night of fights on the shores of the Cuyahoga. What did you think, man? What a what let's start where let's start with the main event. What did you think of that madness? Well, um, first of all, uh, as my prediction stated, Alistair Overeem won the fight, and as he said <laughs> after the fight, uh, Stephen just indeed did tap. So I would like to put that for the record. Overeem, you're the, you're the, the one other person that thought you're the one other person that felt that tap. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He he's the new UFC heavyweight champion, as far as I'm concerned. No, all jokes aside, um, it was a nutty night of fights, man. Starting with the, the the whole CM Punk thing and going through to the main event, everything just felt kind of uh, surreal in a sense. And that main event, I, I certainly agree with you, man. It was an exciting first round. There was that moment where it seemed like Overeem had caught Stipe, then decided to inexplicably go for a choke, which uh, you and I kind of texted uh, back and forth after the fight. And uh, it, it was a moment that he probably should have swarmed Stipe with some punches. Um, that, of course, didn't happen. And then it went kind of back and forth for a little longer before, you know, Overeem found himself waking up and trying to get to the stool. Um, but, yeah, man, it was a crazy, uh, crazy round. And then the reaction you saw from, from the Cleveland fans just after Stipe won there, I mean that that in itself was just a great moment. It was definitely you you could feel it. I wasn't even anywhere close to Cleveland at the time, and I felt like I was right in the crowd uh, when they were all chanting, you know, uh, O H. <laughs> and uh, it it was just awesome, man. I, I you know hats off to Stipe. He definitely showed resilience. I mean, in the heavyweight division, you know, first round knockouts are just commonplace it happens all the time just because of the power these guys have so to be able to weather the storm like he did you know that early kind of rush from Overeem which I don't think he expected that Overeem was going to be that aggressive early on I think to be able to weather that and come back the way he did and win that fight 
just showed me, you know, the right guy's the champion right now. Listen, as a guy that, you know, prior to tonight had as many UFC appearances as CM Punk, who we will talk about shortly, I'm not one to say whether Overy made a mistake or whether he should have done something different in that moment. Um, it's something he and his coaches can discuss going forward. For me as an observer, as a guy that has watched a ton of fights in my lifetime, I felt like it was one of those things where it just didn't necessarily make sense to me if you got a guy a little bit rocked. Unless you know, I mean, unless you know you've got that locked up and you know it's a wrap like Jessica Andrade, who we will talk about later, then to me, you just pound it out, especially in the heavyweight division where you're a great, big, powerful dude like Overeem who looked very good early. This fight threw out that first round and it only lasted four minutes and 27 seconds, but it felt like almost a three-round fight in that first round because there were so many little shifts of momentum. There were points where Stipe would come back and look like he had Overeem on the ropes, and then Overeem would catch him with one, and Stipe would have to back off and reset. They traded those back and forth a couple of times, but then Miosic was able to kind of kind of go for a little bit of an ankle pick, makes Overeem stumble, and just swarms. And it was, to me... What I had thought was possible when we spoke about it on the preview podcast of taking him to the ground and having an advantage there because Stipe does have a devastating top game. And we saw that tonight after those first couple ones got blocked and he snuck one through and was able to start clearing Overeem's hands. It was a wrap. He sniped two home on the chin. Mark Goddard jumped in. Things were done. Tremendous reaction both for Stipe and for the fans in attendance at the queue. Um, really cool that they let him just roll with the OH really, you know, really interesting that he just, that he, he said he wasn't hurt and then he attributed it to getting kicked, which tells you that he was hurt, um, Mm. or that maybe even not necessarily hurt, but at least a little bit dazed trying to process everything that's going on. I really liked in listening after the interviews, Joe Rogan coming out and saying, look, I probably shouldn't be interviewing these guys just immediately after the fact like that, especially the loser, because he's coming out of getting knocked the hell out. And Overeem struggled to get to his feet and was clearly still woozy when they started to bring him up. And I appreciate that because I think there's probably a little bit of that in that moment. I don't want to, you know, rip on the guy too hard because maybe he did feel something that felt like a tap. I didn't, we didn't see it. And kudos to Joe Rogan for mid interview being like, Hey, let's just run this back in the truck a couple times to see if we see what you felt. And they didn't and they went through it the right way. But it just, it, it has always felt to me like a weird thing to interview the loser of the main event and especially to wrap up with that guy. Um, but I feel like they did it right. I feel like. They did a good job with it. Rogan addressed it afterwards of like, look, he said he felt something. I'm sure they'll talk about it at the post-fight press conference and people will butcher Overeem for it on social media because that's what social media is for these days is just absolutely laugh at people that, you know, make comments that you disagree with and you think are crazy. Looking ahead, Stevie Miosic retains the title. We have Fabrizio Verdum that got a win. We will get to him next but what do you do with Miosic going forward? Do you think this is a guy that can enjoy a nice extended run atop the division? 
The record for title defenses is two, so can he equal it or maybe surpass it? And who do you match him up with next if you're calling the shots in the UFC? Yeah, man, this is the this is the whole tricky thing about it. You have that kind of now triangle situation going on between uh, you got Kane and Fabricio and you know Stipe kind of at the top there, but you know th- those are kind of the two possible ways that the UFC can go. I think that's pretty much a no brainer. Um, you know, Kane's coming off a big win over Travis Brown. And Fabrizio Verdum's coming off a big win over Travis Brown, which we'll talk about in a sec. Um, so I think you can go one of those two ways. For my money, I would love to see Stipe fight Cain Velasquez. Um, that's one of those fights that, you know, um, I, I think both guys are, you know, just powerhouses. And, and it would be great to see them go head-to-head against each other. Um, we've seen the Fabrizio Stipe fight. But after, you know, tonight's performance against Travis, I'd like to see that again as well. So, you know, you could go either of the two ways. I do think that probably uh, I would lean towards Kane a little bit more. Um, and in terms of, you know, Stipe Miocic's kind of, you know, run as champion, I legitimately, you know, think that he's a guy who can enjoy a, a possible run of more than, you know, two title defenses. He definitely has all the all the tools to to do it and you know one of the biggest things that he's shown in his fights um is kind of just that resilience you know and getting knocked out in the heavyweight division it happens in a flash um he's shown really good you know kind of um i guess you know you can't really have a good like chin kind of practice you know working on your chin strength but um, I do think that he's a guy who can take a punch and can take a few punches. So, um, you know, in terms of what he brings to the table as well, you know, his skill set, he's got very good wrestling. He's got very good boxing. Uh, this is a guy who I think could potentially have a couple, you know, couple wins as UFC champion. But at the same time, then you look at there's Kane in line and there's Fabricio Verdum in line, who've also looked very good. So, man, this heavyweight division, I still think this title is going to get passed around a few more times in the next year, Um, unfortunately for Stipe Miocic. I'm in step with you on all of that. Point two of the 10 things we learned last night, which will be up on provincesports.com slash MMA blog slash MMA, sorry, when people are listening to this is Miocic versus Velasquez, please. I thought it was a great fight and a great potential fight after Stipe brutalized Mark Hunt because we saw that conditioning. We saw that ability to go the pace that we always attributed to Kane. And and in previewing this fight, I kind of said it feels a little bit like because he's been able to stay healthy, Stipe has taken that torch a little bit from Kane Velasquez as the all-around push-the-pace, just-overwhelm-you-and-drowned-you kind of heavyweight And I'm sure that the former champion wants to get that back, wants the belt back. That'll be a fight that he's asking for. We know he said following his win at UFC 200 that he wanted to hang out and wait and fight the winner of this fight. I assume the UFC will make that happen. It feels like the right fight to make. As for whether he can 
you know, match the two title defense record or potentially break it. I think you're right that all the skills are there, including some of those intangibles that we look for, but it's the heavyweight division and who the hell knows. And that's not me copping out. That's just the reality of this division. We were about 30 seconds away from having another new champion tonight. And so to say with some kind of certainty that Stipe Miocic is going to go on a three, four, five fight winning streak here and hold on to this belt long term would be a little bit of a rush. Does Could he possibly do it? Absolutely. Would it be any surprise if he lost the belt next time out? Not really. It's the Keyboard Kimura podcast on Province Sports Radio. E. Spencer Kite, Patrick Shivaklinski recapping UFC 203 just a few minutes after it has wrapped from the Quicken Loans Arena in Cleveland. We've kind of hinted at the co-main event a little bit. Fabricio Verdum goes out, gets a unanimous decision win over Travis Brown in a rematch of their fight from a couple years back where Verdum cemented himself as the number one contender with a very thorough drubbing of the Hawaiian, started this one out tonight in crazy fashion with a flying sidekick to the face. It looked very early on to me like this was going to be a quick night's work for the former champion who looked like he was ready to just make a statement and try to bump Cain Velasquez out of position and get that next shot at the title. Then Travis Brown seemed to dislocate his finger, looked at referee Mini Brock Lesnar Gary Copeland and called time. They stopped the fight, which they're not supposed to do because it happened. It was an injury. You just keep fighting. It kind of feels like that moment sucked a lot of the air out of it. Fabrizio Verdum continued to sort of just pick apart Travis Brown, and two judges gave Travis Brown the third round. I don't even know about any of that because it seemed weird to me. But then this thing just goes next level crazy afterwards. They're getting booed as they're about to read the decision. Verdum's making the stop crying face at the Cleveland fans and giving them the wave off. And Travis Brown's coach, Edmund Terverdian, steps in there and starts cussing at at Fabricio Verdum and giving him grief for taunting the fans. And Fabricio Verdum goes and gives him a kick in the chest. (laughs) Madness. I don't even know what to say. Like, to me, that moment encapsulated this whole evening. Just weirdness in Cleveland, man. Cleveland, y'all are weird. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's the that's the thing. I, I I told you this, you know, before we started the podcast. I was watching, you know, this fight at Shark Club with my girlfriend, and she's been at a few of these fights with me now, and she just said the same thing. She said, this was, you know, the most unsettling night of fights I've seen so far. And that's kind of what it was, man. And And that moment where Fabricio kind of kicked Edmund in the in the stomach or the chest. That kind of encapsulated everything, just like you said. I mean, it was just a strange, strange night. And, you know, that moment that, you know, it, it that, that fight in its entirety was kind of weird. As you said, you know, there was that moment where, you know, um, uh, he, the, the fight got stopped for a second there. And then it seemed like Fabricio didn't see that he just punched Travis Brown and from there it was kind of just a weird kind of it's it's not that he didn't see it it's that he correctly understands the rules that you cannot call time in the middle of a fight for whatever reason if you're we 
we had it earlier in the fight in the in the night. Sorry, in the Betch Kohea Jessica I fight, Jessica I landed a clean right hand very early on, right on the side of Betch Kohea's face, and Betch motioned to the referee, which was who was Mark Goddard, who officiated the main event. Sort of like I got poked, my eye, something's in my eye. I need you to stop it. And Mark Goddard just hollered at her. It was a punch. Keep going. And that's what is supposed to happen. Fabricio Verdum did 100% the correct thing by going forward and punching Travis Brown in the mush as Mark Ratner, the director of, um, can't even remember Mr. Ratner's title now. I've regulatory affairs. There we go. Um, said during the event, it should not have been stopped. You can't call time for an injury. If you stop for an injury, that should be the fight. And so, that's on Travis Brown. That's on referee Gary Copeland. No fault, no shade should be thrown and directed at Fabrizio Verdum for not stopping and letting him call timeout. Definitely. I mean, it it was it was a veteran move on on his part, and I think you know that's good that you cleared that up for the listeners because I think a lot of people were confused at what was going on at that point in time. Um, but you know the as far as Fabricio's performance, like you said, he came out with that flying kick right out of the gate. Uh, I think he was he was looking for that highlight reel finish off the bat. He threw a couple weird cartwheel kicks in there too, and uh, it it was just a kind of a crazy fight all all around. And I think you know one of the big takeaways I also took from this fight is not just Fabricio Verdum's performance because I think he did exceptionally well he he did all the right things he was being very dynamic with his strikes kind of throwing things that we don't normally see from a heavyweight um and i think the other thing that i saw was a guy in travis brown that you know what happened to this guy a little bit i you know i th- this is the guy who finished alistair Overeem uh in absolutely devastating fashion just a couple years ago it wasn't that long ago, and this is a guy who finished Josh Barnett. He was on a he was on a great run, and then obviously it was kind of uh, stopped by his first loss to Fabricio Verdum. But it just seems like he's a lot more tentative, a lot more hesitant to pull the trigger on stuff. I understand you have to be extremely cautious in there, especially against a heavyweight as dangerous as Fabricio Verdum. But it just seemed like. That old Travis Brown that we saw against Overeem and against Barnett was just non-existent. I mean, listen, I again, you're saying things that I've been thinking for a while now. Um, I was at UFC 130 when Travis Brown Superman punched Stefan Struve and made him do the Matrix as he fell to the ground. Um, this is a dude that we earmarked as a championship contender and he looked the part for a long, long time. His first loss was when he popped a hamstring against Bigfoot Silva, being a little bit too, trying to be too much like Dominic Cruz back in the day. He was on a good run when he was at Jackson Wink. He left there after the first loss to Verdum, kind of blamed them for not really getting him ready. But this is another dude, and we talked about it off air after taping on Thursday for the preview podcast that got out to Glendale and just has not looked like the same fighter that we saw previous to hooking up with Coach Edmund and that crew out there. 
That swagger is gone. He is a guy, and Patrick Wyman of Bleacher Report said this perfectly in his preview. He is a guy whose offense and whose abilities in the cage on fight night are completely predicated on being the bully and being the aggressor and being able to back you up and kind of fight confidently. And as soon as you shake that from him, he's a different guy. And I think that's why Verdum came out and kicked him in the mush right away. Um, it's why I think Verdum started as quickly as he did, because he believes he can break Travis Brown. He said it when they faced off on Thursday. I'm going to break you, and I'm going to... I mean, he said he was going to break his ribs and speak English in his backside as well, which I don't understand how that <laughs> happens. If you didn't see Embedded, Episode 5, go check it out. You'll understand what I'm talking about. But I agree with you. Travis Brown is a dude that just doesn't have that same confidence and swagger that he had prior to moving out to moving back to California and training at Glendale. I don't want to pin it entirely on a camp. Um, I think a lot of it though is just mental because the physical tools are there. He is a six, seven athletic heavyweight. We've seen the knockout power. He's got good kicks. He just doesn't fight with the same aggressiveness and sense of urgency. And that was the one takeaway I had late in that fight was like, it's the third round. You're clearly down on the scorecards. How are you not just coming out? Like, it's better to get knocked out and lose by getting knocked out than by just sitting back and not emptying everything out of the gas tank trying to finish this dude. Because it's not like Verdum was pressing the pace and looked great in that last five minutes, even the last seven minutes of that fight. And so that's the part to me that I think really speaks to the mental of Travis Brown. Once he shook... He can't get it back. He can't reset. And we saw that again in this one. I think Fabricio Verdum kind of becomes the guy that is now got to be in waiting. Maybe that rematch with Junior Dos Santos, who beat him in his promotional debut many years ago, becomes the next fight to make. You know, Ben Rothwell's probably chomping at the bit, looking to get a, looking to get a shot. He was supposed to fight him here. Um, but I do think because this wasn't the kind of performance that Cain Velasquez had against Travis Brown at UFC 200. We'll see Verdum sort of take a back seat to Velasquez, Miosic, and somebody like Junior Dos Santos will probably be, if I'm making the matchups, the next guy that Vicavalo fights. UFC 203 recap podcast here on Province Sports Radio. Patrick Shiviklinski, E. Spencer Kite. We have come to the people's main event. We have come to CM Punk and Mickey Gall. It went pretty much as you would expect. Um, big response for Punk as he came out to Cult of Personality. Got the big pop. Dana White allowed Mickey Gall to come out to Hey Mickey, You're So Fine by Tony Basil. Uh, they had a great big introduction. Mickey Gall got booed. CM Punk got cheered. The fight started and Mickey Gall steamrolled CM Punk. I think it took less than two minutes. It was pretty, like, just over two minutes, sorry. It was, I want to say it was uneventful because it went the way we expected when you have a 24-year-old that has been training MMA for several years and competing in grappling competitions and all of those things against CM Punk. That's not to take anything away from Mickey Gall's performance or upside. But this is what people expected. My question to you is was this bad for the sport? Was this bad for the UFC? Was this something that they should never have considered doing? 
Or is it ultimately a good thing because a lot of us tuned in and we got a chance to see Mickey Gall now have a week in the spotlight where people now know this kid's name? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, kind of going into this whole thing, I, I was I was definitely on the side of, well, you know, CM Punk doesn't deserve to be in the UFC and there is no way he should be in the octagon. Um Kind of watching the way things played out, you know, definitely reaffirmed my belief that he shouldn't have been in the octagon. You mean uh, nothing that he showed you in that 13 <laughs> seconds of still being upright proved to you that he belongs? Well, he did last, I would like to point out a positive, he did last uh, over double what Mike Jackson lasted against Mickey Gall. So there, there's <laughs> your positive. True. He yeah. did outlast the truth. <laughs> He, he lasted two. <laughs> hey, listen, Mickey Gall said forty seconds, so he that's, tripled that. That's right. He he certainly defied some odds. Um, but no, I and you know the the thing with CM Punk is it's it was a tricky thing, man. Because when I saw afterwards, and he was talking about how much fun he had out there, and even you know in this kind of brutal loss and going through what he's gone through, I I believe the dude. I believe him when he says that. You know, this was a great night for him, despite everything that happened, despite how everything played out. I think this is something that he really, really wanted to do. And he came out there and he did it, man. Like, at the end of the day, it's, you know, he he didn't just talk the talk. He walked the walk. He came out there and he fought a kid, you know, who was way younger than him, way more athletic, way more skilled, all of these things. And he still came out there. Uh, yeah, it was a brutal loss. Um, no, I wouldn't want to see him in the octagon ever again. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, man, I, I think it wasn't as, you know, as bad of a thing as people made it out to be. You know, give him that one chance. But now I think it's like, okay, enough, guys. Let, let's let's just move on from that. He had his opportunity to come in and to live out his MMA dream and fight in the octagon. They gave a, They gave it to him. Uh, but we saw clearly what happens when, you know, he gets put in that situation. And, you know, to think that, you know, it, you know, he said, I'll be back and all that kind of stuff. And I was just like, please, please no, because it, it it's not, you know, the right place for him to be at this point in his life. I think he just needs to, you know, enjoy MMA kind of training, maybe if he wants to and stuff like that. But he does not belong inside the octagon. Yeah, I signed off from social media in the immediate aftermath of that fight as the ultra-hot insta-takes started <laughs> pouring in of everybody laughing at this dude for going out there and doing something that 99% of people that were laughing at him would never do. Um, after seeing people say things like, he was lied to for two years, the dude is a grown-ass man and made this decision. If you think for a minute that he wasn't fully aware that what happened on Saturday night was a very real possibility prior to getting in the cage, you are a crazy person. He knew full well what he was doing. And you heard him, as you said, afterwards with Joe Rogan. He loved every minute of it. And I think what he said in that speech, in that interview, at the end of it, is the grand takeaway from this for him and for a lot of people. Um... My boss and my very good friend and mentor, Thomas Gervasi, wrote a great piece about Punk making that walk 
for his Outside the Octagon column on UFC.com and related it to Tom having a, a boxing fight back in his day, Golden Gloves fight. It lasted 63 seconds, but you know what? He made that walk and he stepped in that, he stepped through those ropes. Punk made the walk. That's the win for him. If he had gotten the victory, that's gravy. He made the walk. Most people don't have the stones to do it. He set his mind to it. He trained. He went out there and he took his ass whooping like a man. And then he laughed and said, I'd love to do it again. If that makes you think that all of a sudden the sport's going to collapse because this professional wrestler got in there and got trounced by a kid in two minutes and change, you're crazy. It didn't fall apart when James Tony got his ass handed to him or when Hoist Gracie came back and got pummeled by Matt Hughes. Every so often the UFC is going to have these fights that sort of reinforce almost that this isn't just for everybody, that to what you were talking about on the preview show, this isn't something where any celebrity chef or any famous person that wants to try it should really just be allowed to go and do it because that's what happens. You get your face busted up and your ear all mangled and bloodied and twisted like Punk's was. And so for them to do it as a one-off, it got a lot of attention. To me, I think Mickey Gall comes out of this looking like a star. You mm. nailed the call-out of Super Sage Northcutt. I loved that he said he wants to punch the spikes out of his hair. <laughs> I love that he related it to we're both these guys from looking for a fight that people think are getting handed stuff, but I want to scrap. Perfect. And that, to me, is one of the things that nobody has really been talking about in the entire buildup of this. We have spent since February talking about Mickey Gall in a roundabout way, either directly or mentioning him as CM Punk's opponent. Do you know whose name is going to stand out as much as some of these other guys, even probably like Fabricio Verdum coming out of this? Mickey Gall. And so now you have a 24-year-old unbeaten kid that shows some legitimate raw tools, that shows some legitimate upside, that people are going to be interested in because they saw him whip up on CM Punk and then set a new record for most F-bombs in a post-fight interview, breaking anything that the Diaz brothers have, have ever done with Joe Rogan in the cage. This is a huge win. And, and if you think that this was bad for the sport and that this was a sad day for MMA, you and me don't have a lot to talk about because I think you're crazy. At the end of the day... It's an entertainment business that is going to draw eyes wrapped and framed alongside of sport. It drew a ton of eyes. We saw a one-sided beatdown. They happen pretty regularly. This time it happened to be a famous dude that got his ass kicked. The sport's going to live. The world isn't going to come to an end because we let CM Punk fight in the UFC. I think people are just crazy and going overboard with it. And I am happy that I am flying out of here tomorrow <laughs> evening to a place where I'm not going to be looking at MMA websites for the next two weeks because I imagine there are going to be some absolutely blistering takes in the next few days about how the UFC should be ashamed of themselves. And I think that's craziness. <laughs> it's the Keyboard Kimura podcast on Province Sports Radio. Patrick Shaviklinski, E. Spencer Kite. Moving further down the UFC 203 main card, we come to Jimmy Rivera getting a unanimous decision win over Uriah Faber to extend his winning streak to 19, the quietest 19-fight winning streak in the history of this sport. I don't think people 
will not know Jimmy Rivera going forward. This was a very good performance against a established name, a guy that just fought for the title in Uriah Faber. This absolutely elevates his profile, puts him in that range. You were texting me from the bar wondering, we're spitballing about who he fights next. Is it TJ Dillashaw, Cody Garbrandt, Brian Caraway? There's a bunch of options because bantamweight suddenly got real deep and real interesting. The bigger question for me, and and this isn't to not give Jimmy Rivera time because I think there's going to be lots of time for us to talk about Jimmy Rivera. The bigger one for me is, is this the start of the decline for Uriah Faber or is this maybe the last one for Uriah Faber? He looked a little slow. Jimmy Rivera clearly won that fight every minute of every round. And now you start looking back at some of those fights of Fabers, and I know people will say hindsight is twenty twenty and all like that, but we talked about it in the preview. I was at the fight with Frankie Sines. I think he looked a little sluggish there. I feel Francisco Rivera beat him in the first round of their fight before the eye poke at the finish. I think we've actually been seeing the decline of Uriah Faber for a couple of years and just not really noticed it completely because he still ended up getting the win but they weren't the finishes and they weren't the dominant performances that he had previously had in those spots. And now I think this one is going to make people reassess. Do you think we see Faber again or is, or, and do you think this is the start of a decline or was this just Jimmy Rivera as a better fighter and Uriah Faber is still really good? Um, I think it's honestly a bit of both. I mean, I, I do certainly think, you know, as we alluded to in, in the podcast before this one here, uh, in the build-up to UFC 203, we talked about, you know, that that sort of downfall being on the horizon. I And I admittedly thought it was still a couple fights away. And you said it, it was kind of already happening. So I'll tip my hat to you. I think you are correct on that. Um, seeing what happened tonight with, you know, uh, with Jimmy Rivera, it, it opened my eyes and made me realize, you know, I think that Uriah Faber's time as – an elite UFC, you know, fighter is probably going to start to wind down. Now, whether or not he decides to call it quits after this fight, I personally don't think he'll do that right away. Um, but then again, it wouldn't surprise me. He has a lot of stuff going on outside of the octagon. He's 37. And, you know, if, if he decided that, you know, he wanted to focus on Team Alpha Male and do his thing outside of the octagon – um, I wouldn't be surprised that that much either. So I think right now, you know, it was just a moment where you realize that he's getting older and he doesn't have that same kind of, you know, hunger and, and you know, uh, drive to, to really do this. I mean, this is a guy who's had multiple title shots in the UFC, always came came up short. And I think, you know, a lot of that has weighed on him over time as well. I mean, part of it is getting older and, and whatnot, but part of it is just, you know, being mentally exhausted from the grind. You're always on that grind. For a guy like him, it's always, I, I have that fight, I have that title fight, I lose the title fight, and now <laughs> i got to go back into the mix. Like, that is mentally exhausting on anybody. So I think, you know, for Uriah Faber... He's certainly got some, you know, um, soul searching to do and figure out what he wants to do next. Hell of a fighter, man. He he's one of the greats, one of the the greatest lighter weight guys that we've ever seen. 
Um, and, and that's what I wanted to say yeah. is like a lot of people only have come to know Uriah Faber since he has been in the UFC. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe the tail end of his WEC days when TSN started showing it here in, in Canada. Um, the truth is to me, I think Uriah Faber peaked a little bit before MMA's popularity. His best years were a little bit before he got to that big stage. He was still a guy that, as you said, competed against the very best the UFC had to offer. Unfortunately, a lot of people look at him as the guy that couldn't win the big one. But before he couldn't win those ones in the UFC, or even dating back to his last two title fights in the WEC, he was a dude that didn't lose. He is, as you said, one of the best lighter weight class fighters in the history of this sport, a guy that deserves the utmost praise. And my my prediction, my suggestion, not that Uriah is listening to this, but for everybody that is, that they can circle their calendar when they heard it here first. There is a fight card coming up in Sacramento, California, where they open the new barn that the Sacramento Kings are going to play in. That, of course, is where Team Alpha Male and Uriah Faber are based. You give him a winnable fight. I don't care if everybody wants to complain that it is a layup for the California kid. You give him a winnable fight on the main card. Make it the co-main event. I believe that's a Fox event. And you let him ride off into the sunset and call it a career at home. Leave the gloves in the center. Peace out. AL3 hits California love and lets him walk out. Yeah. Not not enough guys ride off into the sunset when they can and take advantage of those moments. That to me would be a perfect moment for Faber. Yeah, that I think that's the right thing to do, man. And and just an all around class guy in Uriah Faber, one of these guys. Good that, dude. You know, you know, we're we're gonna be talking about this guy for years ahead and and looking back at what he's done through the span of his career. And I, I'm really glad you brought up that point that what he's done before his UFC career. Cause a lot of people, you know, haven't seen that side of him and he was such a dominant fighter for a very long time. And I agree with you hundred percent that I think he peaked a little bit before, you know, MMA got huge. So, you know, it, it's just, uh, you know, tough thing to see a guy who, you know, you respect so much and you've seen compete time and time again, you know what he was capable of at one point in time. It is tough to see them kind of deteriorate, but that's... Well, you know, and, and just lose yeah. to really good fighters. Like, that's yeah. the thing we don't talk about enough in this sport, and we don't give guys enough... Like, we want to beat guys up for, for all their losses, but, like, prior to this loss, the only people Uriah Faber has lost to are world champions. Mm-hmm. It's Mike Brown, it's Jose Aldo, it's Frankie Edgar, it's Dominic Cruz, it's Henan Barrow, it's guys that either were champions at the time prior to that fight with Frankie Edgar. He had never lost a non-title fight in his career. How many guys can go through and say that? He's lost two non-title fights his entire career. And yes, people will go back and look at the resume and look at his record and say, yeah, well, I don't know all these dudes he was fighting at Gladiator Challenge or King of the Cage or wherever he was before he got to the point where the WEC was big. And they won't know that winning the belt from Chance Ferrer is a very good win. And fights like that are really critical. And they'll, you know, downplay beating Jens Pulver when Little Evil was still tough as nails and hard to put away. But this is a dude that did a lot for this sport. And if he had come around even five years later, 
he would be even bigger than he is now, and dude is a legit megastar. So if this is the end, or if Sacramento in December is the end, or whatever, Faber has been fantastic dude to watch and cover and get to discuss the most positive dude you will ever talk to and ever interact with. And another thing that he doesn't get enough credit for, look at all the guys that he has brought into this sport and brought to the elite level through Team Alpha Male. He is not the head coach, but he is the head scout. You better believe that. He is the guy that goes out and finds these dudes when they're college wrestlers like TJ Dillashaw and like Lance Palmer and that inspires these guys like Joe Benavidez to track him down and say, hey, can I come learn from you? And Cody Nolove to send him a, a text message and be like, look, dude, I would love to come and learn from you because you guys are the best. So Faber has a legacy that, that extends well beyond his win-loss record and is a guy that deserves the utmost attention and respect from fans going forward, regardless of where his career goes from here. It's Keyboard Kamora Podcast on Province Sports Radio. East Spencer Kite, Patrick Shivik, Linsky. Last one on the UFC 203 main card. The curtain jerker for the pay-per-view. Jessica Andrade goes out and chokes out Joanne Calderwood inside the first round to get her second consecutive stoppage win since moving down to strawweight. This was a fight that I was torn on and on trying to figure it out. You rolled with Andrade, so I will let you start us off. Yeah, I mean, just a, a another impressive performance. I mean, you know, uh, coming off that win over Jessica Penne, we saw, you know, the potential of what Jessica Andrade could do at strawweight. And, uh, you know, I think that coming into this fight against Joanne Calderwood, who's a very, very tough opponent, um, and, and someone who I, I certainly have a lot of respect for, you know, coming in to see, you know, what she did against Jojo, that was downright impressive as well. So you have two, you know, very, very conclusive, impressive finishes, um, for Jessica Andrade at strawweight. And as we know, you know, the strawweight division is kind of all over the map right now. I, I mean, you have, a contender most likely in, uh, you know, Karolina Kowalkiewicz, you know, my fellow Polish uh, <laughs> sister there. Uh, if she, you know, gets a crack at Joanna Janjacek next is the question. It might probably, you know, it probably will happen, I think. Um, but, you know, outside of that, I think having Jessica Andrade in there is a really, really interesting addition to that division. And, She's someone that has that kind of aggressiveness that someone like Joanna has in, in a lot of ways. You know, um, Jessica Andrade comes in there and she looks for the finish every time. And that is something that, you know, a lot of these, you know, uh, strawweight fighters don't necessarily have. They, they don't have that kind of, uh, you know, instinct that Jessica Andrade has. And kind of the experience for Jessica Andrade as well. Coming from, you know, bantamweight to strawweight, I think absolutely, you know, it it certainly has helped her a whole lot. Um, she's been fighting bigger, bigger, (laughs) you know, chicks and well, and 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 doing well. And that's the real big takeaway for me is that she was completely undersized. I was at her debut in Seattle where she fought Liz Carmouche, they list her at 5'2. I think that's generous. Mm -hmm. Um, at the time then, which was three years ago, 
the few of us that were in attendance as media all went, this chick has no business fighting in this division. Um, she looks perfectly situated. She's still undersized in terms of height for fighting at strawweight. You saw Jojo kind of tower over her a little bit at the weigh-ins and even in the fight tonight where she grabbed the clinch and she's able to just grab that really perfect clinch. The thing with Jessica Andrade, and you touched on it, it's that aggressiveness. It's that power. It's that ferocity that some of these female fighters in that division haven't shown us yet. I don't want to say they don't have it. Mm. I don't want to say that it's never going to come for some of them, but it is very much there for Jessica Andrade, who comes out, she rips body shots, she slammed Joanne Calderwood a couple of times on Saturday night, (laughs) and just has an innate ability. And listen, if you want to say that Joanne Calderwood left her neck out there, I'm not going to disagree with you. It was a mistake. But Jessica Andrade has an ability to capitalize on those mistakes. And when she sees those openings, she doesn't screw up. Relate that to the Overeem fight where he kind of goes in and tries to get it and doesn't quite get the grip right and doesn't quite get the squeeze. As soon as Joanne Calderwood left her head in there, I started typing Jessica Andrade contender at straw weight and waiting for your text telling me that you had leveled things out with me or gotten ahead of me in the, in the picks for the night because you got that one right because there was no way Joanne Calderwood was getting out of that. Andrade's squeeze is that good. She doesn't dive on that without having it. And I think you're right. I think she's an instant contender. I think her next fight has to be against one of those fighters in the top five, maybe Carla Esparza who got a win a few months back and is a former champion. Regardless of who it is, this is a contender, and I'm sitting here right now on Saturday night, September 10th, really excited about the possibility of Jessica Andrade one day fighting Joanna Janjacek, because it will be awesome, awesome lady violence. Yeah, no, and that's, you know, I think that that's the logical next step for her. She needs a fight in that top five. I, I like the idea of her and Carla Esparza. Also, you know, I like the idea because Esparza is kind of a different fighter stylistically. Yep. Um, it, it will definitely test Andrade's skills in a, in a different way. So I think that, you know, you give her that one extra test, let Kovalkiewicz fight Yinjechik in Poland, uh, and then you do... They both want to do it in New York, which I think is is maybe the better place to do it. Nah, but come on, New, New York City, come on. There is a huge Polish <laughs> contingent. It is going to be a massive event where media from around the world are going to flock to. And listen, this isn't a knock on having the event in Poland because obviously to Polish women, it makes a whole lot of sense and it would be a big deal there. The problem is, is that you're not going to get as much North American media traveling to Poland to cover that event. Whereas if you do it in New York City, you're going to have that international media coming from Europe, coming from Australia, coming from all over the globe to New York to cover that show. Because A, it's the first fight in New York. It's going to be a big deal. It's going to be at the Mecca. And B, unfortunately, North American media just aren't going to make that trip, which sucks. You'll We'll see it next month with UFC 204. We've seen it at other events. They just don't make those trips. So... To me, if you're going to maximize those two and their exposure, you do it in NYC. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense at the end of the day. I think, you know, there is a large Polish contingent as well in yep. New York. 
So it, it definitely makes a lot of sense from that angle. And, you know, Joanna is a big, big star in the MMA game at this point in time. Absolutely. Madison Square Garden makes a lot of sense. It's it's a spot to put her. I mean, she is, as you said, a big, big star in this sport. I think they are going to try to blow the doors off that card with as many big fights as possible. I think using it as an opportunity to showcase your current dominant defending female champion makes a whole lot of sense. But we will cross those bridges hopefully in the next couple of weeks. Hopefully we start getting some fight announcements. As we are into September now, that fight card is... Two months away, so we need to start getting some bouts announced. But for right now, we're going to call it a night on the surprise edition of the Keyboard Kimura podcast. Recapping UFC 203, it was a crazy night. Some weird stuff happened. I'm sure there's going to be lots of fallout. I will be leaving it all to you, Patrick, to cover because in about 24 hours, I will be 30,000 feet in the air hopefully falling asleep so that I'm not exhausted and useless when I arrive in beautiful London for two weeks away with my lovely wife, who has been patient and wonderful for yet another year of dealing with me. So we're getting away. I'm shutting everything off. No Twitter. Lots of Instagram. Lots of Facebook for pictures for everybody. But no MMA talk. It is all yours. So tell people where to get it all over the next two weeks. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, give me a follow on Twitter, as always, at P-A-T-C-W-I-K-L-I-N-S-K-I. And tune in, obviously, to uh, you know the Keyboard Kimura Twitter account. Make sure you follow us, like us on Facebook, and all that noise. I'll, I'll be certainly you know um, getting you covered for those fights coming up in uh, Hidalgo, Texas is the next one, I believe. The uh, booming uh, metropolis of Hidalgo, <laughs> Texas. Yeah, yeah. As friend of the podcast, Matt, as friend of the podcast, Matthew Wells pointed out, it would be easier for him to drive to Oklahoma than it would be for him to drive to Hidalgo, Texas. And he lives in Texas. That's wow. how big Texas is. <laughs> it is a It is a good card. It is coming up next weekend. Brasilia, Brazil with the return of Cyborg after that. I will be jumping in with Punch Drunk Predictions with Patrick, but that's going to be about the extent of it for me. But do please still follow at Spencer Kite on Twitter and Instagram. As I said, lots of pictures, lots of good stuff coming that way. But that's it for us. No podcasts. I'm serious this time. I'm not going to be jumping in transatlantic podcasting or anything like that so never little, say never <laughs> so a little two-week break for now we appreciate you tuning in we appreciate you subscribing and following the show and following our work at provincesports.com slash mma we hope you enjoyed the fights we hope you're looking forward to next weekends as always most importantly please be good to one another You've been listening to Keyboard Kimura, the official mixed martial arts podcast of the province. Read the Keyboard Kimura blog on theprovince.com, follow them on Twitter at Keyboard Kimura, or visit them on Facebook at facebook.com slash Kimura. Keyboard Kimura.